Hello, you're listening to the abridged version of Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full-length version of Book Shambles and also get loads of other extra treats and bits and pieces, then why not go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Anyway, here's the abridged version with loads of really interesting things that were cut out. I mean, there's lots of interesting things you're still going to hear, but some of the things you're missing out on. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles, producer Trent here. Our guest on today's episode is Dara McNulty, author of Wild Child and Diary of a Young Naturalist, which last year won Best Non-Fiction Book at the British Book Awards, which coincidentally was the media partner of. So a lovely little bit of serendipity there before we get to today's episode. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash bookshambles to support the show and the Shambles Network, get extended episodes of Book Shambles each week, and lots of other goodies. New series of our Uncanny Hour is coming up soon, as well as lots of other bits and bobs just for Patreon supporters. And also you get that nice warm glow of knowing you're helping us keep on going. Uh, obviously, more live gigs being cancelled at the moment, uh, Nine Lessons last year, we had to postpone the last two shows. They're now in April. Tickets for that are on sale at cosmicshambles.com slash nine lessons. So who knows what's happening with live shows, but we're soldiering on as ever. Josie is still on maternity leave, but she will be back in the coming months and or weeks. So the first batch of episodes this year will be either Robin Solo or with a variety of different co-hosts. Today, it's Helen Chersky who also hosts the Science Shambles podcast with Robin. Make sure you check that out. Rate, like, review, subscribe, five stars on Apple Podcasts, all that business. Enough of that. Here is today's episode. Uh, hello. Welcome to uh, Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Uh, Josie remains uh, currently on maternity leave. And uh, so I'm joined today by Helen Chersky and also joined by someone who was the author of one of my very high up, very high up in my favourite book lists of uh, 2020, Diary of a Young Naturalist, uh, which I'm sure I, I've probably gone on about nearly as much as Rebecca Ragsykes' book Kindred and there's a few others that, and John Higgs's book about William Blake as well, uh, which uh, is just a, a fantastic book in terms of its ability, I think, to to really change the palette of the colours that you see of nature, of the, the, the details, small and large details that are all around you that basically change the way uh, and what you can see just when you look out of your window. I think that, that that's part of, of what it manages to do as well as do many other things. So, um, Dara, hello. Hello. Hello, Robin. It's really nice to see you again. It's been... I have no track of time anymore. Ah, well. <laughs> <laughs> Diary of a Young Naturalist, I mean, I presume you were about, were you 15 when you started writing that? I was 14 when I started writing and 15 when I finished-ish, <laughs> because I started yeah. sort of around my birthdays, so. And did you know what it was going to be when you started, or did you just sort of start, and then it turned uh, into something as you went along? I had no idea really what on earth was going on. Um, did not even know it was going to be a book when I started writing it, because at the beginning, it was just a diary um and i uh, and because it was written in nearly real time i also had no idea what the plot was and um, which is kind of terrifying as a writer um uh, because it's um you've got no idea really what's coming up so 
nothing is written down with knowledge of what happens later in the book. <laughs> um, so I had, was just sort of winging it half the <laughs> um, and hoping for the best. Um, but it was uh, an incredible experience nonetheless, even if slightly chaotic and lots of random jottings down at 3 a.m. in the morning um, because that's when I usually wrote my diary. Um, and just trying to um, get all my emotions down the page in some accurate manner. When did you get a sense that there was a shape to it beyond a shape that was good for you as a diary? Because, of course, you know, diaries are useful for the mm. for the diarist. But that sense yeah. that it can then speak to, and as your book has, such a large number of people. Um, I saw, well, I knew that it was going to be, that uh, I was going to write a few more seasons at the end of spring because I'd sort of just intended to stop it about then. Um, because I was like, I'm, I'm just doing it's 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 basically because I had done a blog before that. I was like, it's just gonna be a blog, basically, and then I'm gonna it'll be published, it'll be nice and small and kind of cute and it'll be fun. And then I got to the end of spring and I was like, but what if I wrote more? Um and then I just kept on writing and I ended up with three extra and I was like might as well make it a year <laughs> and then I ended up with a book um I think that's great though because I think a lot of the best projects in life are the ones that start as a small thing and just get out of control in a, you know in a good way <laughs> yeah because then it doesn't even feel like you're working really you're just sort of doing something that you really enjoy doing and you don't feel too tied down to it because you never set out really to finish it <laughs> Um, you're already ahead of what you intended to do, so you could sort of. It was. It was all. It was all, like, you, there's a lot of motivation from that, I guess. How much did writing it change the way that you, you saw nature? I presume that that bit, as you as you said, you did a blog post before as well, blog posts as well before, but this sense of of beginning to do you did you find the way that you examined nature, the way that you experienced nature? the way that you connected with nature changed because every single night at 3 a.m. you were that charting of it was changing for you as well um i feel like it did change i because of the reasons why i was going out into nature in the book because there was some quite troubling things going on in my life um, I don't know if it was that that caused my change or the writing down, because I'd always been writing down everything that I saw. Um, but during the book, I definitely became a lot more uh, dependent on nature as a place where I could go to, uh, uh, to get a little bit more peaceful and a bit more tranquility in my life, which was quite turbulent at that time. And so I definitely got much closer to it during the writing of the book um but like it was, it was it's an interesting thing because i like how do i put this when i was writing the book it was my way of sort of processing the world at that point because obviously i didn't speak to many people and so 
writing the book was that sort of escape for me and going into nature was also an escape so they became this almost um this almost coping mechanism in the book and I think that together I guess it, I don't know exactly how it altered how I looked at nature because I don't think I could really even remember the exact way I experienced nature before writing the book really anymore um it's been it's been too long now uh, <laughs> um yeah the the feels like forever ago now when I wrote it <laughs> and how about you know you you write a book like that and it goes out into the world and then you get the reaction of all these people did that change how you relate to nature because obviously up to that point I guess it's a very personal thing isn't it you you're dealing with what what the nature that's in front of you and you write very beautifully about it and then suddenly the world is looking in and yeah how, what how did that change the way you looked at nature getting those reactions um I'm pretty sure that didn't change how I, because my way of um, of dealing with people looking in my life was sort of to just ignore it all and just go, la, 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 it's, just, it's all fine. Um, I'm just still looking at nature and just sort of try and block out everything that was going on around me and try to make it impact my life as less as possible. Um, so I could still keep on writing the same type of writing that I wanted to um, without feeling that pressure, I guess. And But I do feel like it's been incredibly heartwarming because I, I never felt this feeling before in my entire life when like um, children come up to you and they say um, that the, your book has changed how they see the world or make them a little bit happier. And you're just like, that is possibly the most incredible feeling I've ever felt like in a social interaction, which I do not cope well with. And then hearing that from other humans was just like, wow, I don't, I think it didn't change how I looked at the world anymore, but it really, really helped me feel a lot more, a bit more self-confidence and, a lot more hopeful as well and a lot just happier in general um i feel like i'm a lot happier than i was in the book at least uh, it's interesting because mm. i i think about in on, on the first page in in the prologue where you say i have the heart of a naturalist the head of a would-be scientist and the bones of someone who is already wearied by the apathy and destruction wielded against the natural world yeah and, and just you saying that now it's i suppose uh, has it led to you hearing more and more of those those voices that are not apathetic mm. and those connections with those people that that might give you at least if not optimism possibilism um well i generally do have optimism because that's all i really have left i feel like that's our one shield mental shield against all the stuff that's going on in the world stuff that i feel like it, it can be very easy to feel like there's nothing we can do about um, because us as the people have done basically everything we possibly can at this point and it's up to governments to take the action now which is quite depressing when you think about it um depending on the government to make the right decision um then i feel like and i know that there's a way through because if there isn't a way through um then i don't think like it 
goes into this idea that it uh, humans can do crazy things um if we all put our minds to it um there were we generally underestimate our ability to work together as a species a good deal and i feel like if we start succumbing to that lack of um optimism uh we sort of won't try and that's the worst thing we can do and that leads to the apathy um and i think that's something that i didn't really quite grasp in the book well not until the very end of the book i didn't really quite get that um the importance of the importance of being optimistic um and trying to see all that beauty and wonder in the world and still have that hope that there's still a chance obviously we still need to do it um but i definitely feel a little bit more optimistic after seeing i think after seeing all of those people and after seeing all of the like because when i was writing this book um uh there was very little in the way of a movement at that time um school strikes didn't hadn't started yet um there wasn't any protests on the street at, the, at that time um it was honestly pretty lonely at that point um like it, it's it's only been like three or four years since the book but a lot has changed and we've almost started the whole movement within that time so i do believe that we can make a change hopefully and i'm going off on a ramble oh well well it's interesting actually i'm just thinking (laughs) if you've ever heard our podcast (laughs) it's one of the things where we can never upbraid people for rambling yeah because we're as guilty of it as anyone but actually it's interesting to hear you say that because when i was your age i was at school campaigning on environmental issues and i think that it's interesting that in a way, the type of the way you campaign has to keep inve- reinventing itself. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> and so to every generation, I think it possibly looks like no one's been here before, but it's because here was a slightly different place. But yeah. it, I agree with you that the last three or four years, it's been very, as for those of it, because I'm a, you know, a, an earth scientist, I, I study the, the atmosphere and the ocean. And then suddenly people have started paying attention. And that has definitely changed in that, you know, that, that there's people are prepared to listen. And, but it's partly because um there's a kind of critical mass of voices yeah. like yours like it was coming from one or two places and suddenly it's coming from a hundred or a thousand places yeah and oh have you been aware of that around you i mean i guess writing a book like that would make you more aware of the number of voices the number of people who are saying things um yeah i had sort of begun to come aware of it um there was i think there's this um lesser known um young people blogging sort of community of young bloggers at that time of which um is like they're they're all over the place now but um back then it was the sort of little people who are young people who are writing about nature in blogs um and so i was seeing all these voices um around me and I guess I knew that there were people out there after doing the blog before the blog. I had no idea of anybody out there. Then I did the blog. I was like, Oh, there, there are loads of people here. 
and then everybody else just sort of appeared out of and it was like oh now everybody's here uh, <laughs> um and it, it did happen quite quickly because like i because now i need to get dates right which is not my strong suit i started the blog when i so that was five years ago when i started all this um and i guess yeah, five years isn't a really a long time when you think about it um it's not a long time so it's, i honestly i feel like time's been completely thrown out the window at this point though so that's all right easier <laughs> that way <laughs> not to worry about it <laughs> well of course a lot of physicists question whether time itself exists or is merely some kind no, of that uh, human true. construct in its own way so let's let's forget about these parochial issues of calendars etc it's really not required um i i wanted to ask both you and helen uh just on, on I, I don't know whether it's a simple question or it's a difficult one to pick up which is that first time that you experienced something in nature that you were so desperate to share you know that thing that sometimes you see something and there is a point and it, i don't know what age it is that you're just so desperate to say i've just seen the most wonderful thing and you want to tell the whole world about it so helen i'm going to start with you what would you remember though that, that first so it doesn't have to if it turns out later on you say i've suddenly realized that wasn't the first time none of these things will be judged on that but i'm just thinking of one of those moments well actually I, I, actually my contribution there is that what i always have thought, so i have i have traveled a lot on my own i've been to lots of places on my own and I've actually traveled less with other people in spite of all the filming. And actually it is almost always the case that seeing something with someone else is better. Like I have been in many amazing places by myself and it is not that the experience is completely different. And so I would actually say, it's not even about sharing it with everybody. It's about sharing it with one person because sharing it with one person is always like it, even if they're just standing next to you, not saying anything, it is much, much better. You can appreciate much more because you've shared it with another human. So, so that's the first thing. So I don't think you have to share with lots of people. You only need one for it to make a difference. Um, and, and I guess for me, I mean, I, I was lucky because I, I was um, given the opportunity, I did a lot of fundraising, raised the opportunity to see, to do conservation work overseas when I was 17. And, and that, like the first time, the it was just all of it like the fact that you could go somewhere and see all these things that was amazing and you you get that you can have that experience much closer to home i was just lucky that i saw it further afield so it, it wasn't even one experience it's just the first time the first time i saw the vastness of the variety that was the thing but yeah it's all about the people you share it with that would be my perspective i don't know dara what do you think um no i've always been trying to write about everything that I could get my hands on so I think I'm just going to choose the one that still sticks into my memory this day that um, I could if I could leave all my other memories behind I would have to keep this single memory and that was the time I saw the hen harrier um a big dog forest it was the first time that I like I'd always wanted to write about stuff but the first time I really wanted to share something um, like in my core um, that I wanted to just um, say so much to everybody I ever met. It's the reason why um, that I still say hen harriers are my absolute favorite birds was when 
So it was in a sort of Sitka plantation um, and it just rose up out. And I, and I had seen like a speck of it earlier that day when we were walking around, like almost like a ghost, I, like it flitted in between the hills. I was like, no, 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 it's not it. Uh, and then it came out and I, and I was just lying um, face up on the grass beside a lake and it just sort of rose up in front of me. Um, by in front of me, I mean like it was about half a kilometer away, but it felt close. And it was one of them, it was one of those memories that I've always wanted to write about since, even though it didn't even happen in the span of the book, I even managed to snuck it in there. Uh, um just to, just as a memory because i needed to talk about it so badly um but so that would be mine and was it the first time you'd seen one was it, it was, yeah it was the first time i'd ever seen one and it, it wasn't even supposed to really be there um like and nobody had really recorded them there um and then i saw and i was like I know that there's hen harriers in the general area, but I was like, no, it's not happening. Uh, and then, oh, and then it just became that place. Uh, Big Dog Forest just became that place that I always went to. And I became almost a, the person who looked out for those hen harriers. And it's been such a shame that after all that's happened i haven't been able to see them in years um but makes it all the more special though the first does, one does. well well i was wondering so i've got in front of me uh the, the you know uh, your recent book which is wild child a journey through nature which is has got stunning illustrations it's a, it's a very different type of book it's 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 a sort of uh, well perhaps you should describe it but it, it, it dips into lots of different things but i was wondering how because you had to choose things to put in this book and i was wondering how you how did you choose what went in this one? Because the previous one, I guess you just, you know, it, it happened as it went along, but this one, this one you had to choose. Um, for this, for Oakham, so for Wild Child, I picked all of the birds that I think, and the creatures that I would see in the habitats I was talking about. So the ones that I saw the most often uh, there's a lot of different creatures in the book. Um, and so the ones that, so where I start off with garden, with the garden, um, looking out of the window. So I was like, okay, what do I, I literally went to my window. I was like, what do I see when I'm looking out of my window? Um, and put in some cool extra birds. Um, and I was almost just trying to make it, to be uh what you could see um more than the more extravagant species or rare species i wanted to make it as down to earth and as rooty as possible um just the birds that you can see in your garden at any time and then i sort of continued through that without through the book but I, in the prose section, which was the bit that I found the most fun of writing, I gave, I set myself a little challenge. Um, and I don't know how many people have actually noticed this. I would not say the name of the bird inside the prose. And I set that self as a rule for myself. 
and I'm gonna if you can guess what type of creature it is from the if I can say if I can hand this to a child and they can read the words and point to a picture and say that's that bird then I've succeeded and I can see Robin's checking it now uh, <laughs> I'm not I had definitely I had definitely yeah. noticed this because yeah. being a scientist, I'm like, but what's it called? I mean, my first reaction is, what are we yeah. talking about? Define your terms. You know? <laughs> I totally see why you've done it that way, but I, I really did notice it and I thought it yeah. was a really interesting <laughs> choice. And then I, I, then I obviously in the facts section, I then defined them um, and gave them some facts and some uh, Barry's drawings were incredibly cool and definitely it would not have been as easy to do that sort of technique without Barry's drawings and pictures. Um, but honestly, um, it was so much fun. It's honestly the most fun writing anything I've ever had. Um, it, it was an absolute joy because sometimes with the diary, sometimes it gets a little bit heavy, um, but I could just keep it light the whole way through Wild Child and just have it a big bundle of joy and that was quite refreshing, honestly. It is. It is I love it's the a, Kingfisher. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was just going to say I love it because that that is one of my in in terms of the 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 local river where I was brought up. That's what we always hoped to see. We knew there were kingfishers down there, but of course they're very very elusive. And I think I probably only saw kingfishers about. Uh, sadly enough, I was going to say the crest farm that is still there, but it's no longer a watercress farm because of course all the sewage that is allowed in the rivers uh, now. Uh, which means that's been destroyed on a on a rather negative thing. But on the positive side, it is still there. They are still managing to create some kind of livelihood. But that excitement on the you know every now and again, and you're talking yearly, not monthly. Each time you'd go down, you think, "Will we see the kingfisher skim across where that watercress is, where we saw that two years ago?" And then every now and again, you would get that again, and it would be such a such a brief moment. And so, and so indistinct, apart from, of course, so distinct, because that colour, that flash of that colour is so bold, uh, especially for a British bird. Uh, and then when it's gone, you still have that sense. Its presence still seems to be there for almost, to me anyway, much longer than any other bird I think that I've ever seen. Hello, sorry to disturb the conversation. Just to say you are listening to the abridged version of Josie and Robin's book shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version, then you can support us via Patreon and get all of the other bits of tittle-tattle that dropped out of our mouth. One of my favourite things in here was that there's a set, I mean, there's all there's, there's lots of things in this 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 book. It, there's doing, there's things to do and things to look at and, and it's all great. But one of my favourite bits was uh, the list of things we've got in common with the wildlife. Because I think that, I mean, I don't know what your perspective on this is, but I, I feel that... Um, a lot of nature documentaries and writing has set us set us apart from nature. It's over there, some long distance away, through binoculars or through a screen, and it, it's it's almost as though it's untouchable. And yet, first of all, it isn't because you know humans get everywhere. But secondly, we're not that you know they're not that different. They're, they're organisms trying to survive you know that there's commonalities and i thought that was a great thing to put in there and t talk to us a little bit about that yeah so i wanted to put in these little bits of um in the book alongside the facts i also wanted to put in a bit of science into the book as well um and i was 
the one of the first it was actually one of the first things that I decided and it was the reason why I decided to put in an extra section into the an extra spread into the book for each section was um that spread specifically um because I was like this is, I want this book to also work as an educational tool as well slightly because I want children to read it and not only go um, look at oh my goodness be cool pictures and nice words but also uh, perhaps learn something or um, gain some understanding about the world around them and that the idea that we're not so far from nature and we're inextricably linked uh, together I thought was it's massively important when you're thinking about how we develop a connection to the natural world as well because um you've got to remove those barriers that seem to that we put in our way um to try and care for nature so that's sort of why i put it in um also it was a lot of fun so <laughs> i think um, also that that thing as you were saying before to make sure that the book did not go for what is the most you know what what is the possibility the exotic possibility of what yeah. might be seen in the book that that because to me one of the the most exciting things about some of my favorite nature writing is when it takes something which is an everyday possibility and therefore you've stopped looking at it because if you look at your bird table maybe you're seeing roughly and then of course even in in our in, when i think of the changes in, in my lifetime, the changes of the visitation of house martins, the changes of the number of house sparrows, th these things which sometimes were a mundane event and then they become a rarer event and then you realise that you might have, should perhaps have spent more time looking at it when it was there and when it was everywhere. And I think that bit of, as, as I'm, I'm sure we may well have talked about this before, but you know, one of my favourite Charles Darwin books is his book all about earthworms. Because earthworms, you just dig around and you can find some earthworms and they don't look that spectacular if you just pass over them quickly until you start thinking about, you know, you stare for, it's that beautiful thing. There's a, a film director who used to talk about the fact that he used to like to make shots that were so long that eventually they became boring and then he'd stay on that shot because then there's a point where they stop being boring and they become utterly fascinating and and i think that's sometimes with nature it's that bit where you start off and you look at something and think, oh yeah that's interesting now ah, that's there every day and then you start staring at it again and if you stare at it for long enough all of that fascination yeah. starts to come out yeah definitely um and uh, i actually do love that film technique when they sort of stay on that there's um oh it's oh it's russian filter. is it tarkovsky yep and it's the is, is it are you, it's the candle scene um he was like with the with the candle taking it across the uh the street and it keeps on going out and it, you look at it for so long that it, it almost time starts to go weird as well it's very cool um Helen, you should watch it. It's really Apparently good. I should. My uh, film education <laughs> needs books. I might be all right on films. No good at all. <laughs> Tarkovsky is a really good place to start. Yes. Because yeah. he does these films which are, you know, th there's a beautiful book by Jeff Dyer, which we've talked about before on this, called Zona, in which he basically just describes what he is seeing on screen as he watches Tarkovsky's Stalker. And it works. It's a brilliant meditation. And it almost, he also did a similar version with the film Where Eagles Dare, which reads quite differently. <laughs> but 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 Zona, it works. So, and, and his yeah. films are that thing, as you said, that, that where, where time no longer, when you watch an action film, there is a point, like I find Marvel films, whenever I take my son to them, I always go, why do they have to be so long? 
It's just too long because it's just event after event after event. And it's basically story progression after story progression. Whereas Tarkovsky's films are, there's a story in there, but also there's no, there's no certainties. To, do you know what I mean by that? There's a yeah. certainty. If you watch the latest Spider-Man film, there's mm -hmm. a certainty to each scene of what it's yeah. expressing, of where it's taking you emotionally, of what it means. Yeah. If you watch something like uh, Solaris or you watch something like uh, Mirror or you watch something like uh, Stalker, um, there's a point where the spell takes over and then you look at your watch and you yeah. go, hang on, but it can't be it over because this what? film's three hours long. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> And I think that's true. I, mean, I don't know if you feel that sometimes when you're staring out the window of... I wrote about this in, in the last book. I, I think it was still in there. I think it made the editing process um, about when every morning I would go and do exercises during the beginning of lockdown. And I realised that I, my, I put my mat down right by a daffodil. And every single morning when I was doing press-ups and that kind of thing, I would look at this daffodil because it would always be in my... And, and I would see when the daffodil had reached what, what looks to human eyes at its most fruitful, at its time of, you know, you know of the greatest vivacity. And then, of course, it started to just begin to fade. And then it started to lean. And, to, and, and I watched over that period yeah. of three months... All of this, this, and you, you get a real sense of connection. And I started to take yeah. a photo at the end of every day. I would take a photo of it and pop it up. But then people became increasingly fascinated by a single picture of a single flower with almost no yep. change, as it seemed, until you watched it in kind of your own flick book yeah. mind. Yeah, it's like, and it, it also kind of shows you that plants live on a completely different time scale to us as humans. It's when when you look at a a plant, it's, it's it feels um, insanely slow. I remember I was reading um, a book by uh, Sachs, uh, Sachs Oliver Sachs, um, um, the River of Consciousness, and it, and he was talking about that. It's a, it's a simple biological like fact that. Um, Plants use um, hormones to convey their nervous signals instead of um, uh, us humans who use electric um, because um, electrical is better than mechanical um, <laughs> for most things. And so, but if you speed up a plant, then it basically almost looks like an animal again. Um, just it's a, over a completely different time scale, um, which, and the time scale that we live at doesn't actually really mean too much when you think about it because um we're still generally in the same space of time but to us relatively it looks insanely different um which is quite interesting um they did um, that, that, that that seems to remind me of jane goodall's book through a window as well where she talks about the fact that we must always try and remember that we are our perception of the world is through the window of the human eye, of the human yeah. experience, of how our mind and brain has evolved yeah. to filter the world. 
and as you were saying there about about the nature of that you know the, the very idea of the passing of time as we know from human to human that sense of the passing of time can change a great deal again even watching a marvel movie that marvel yep. movie might seem to be 27 hours to me and it might seem to be 12 minutes almost to the person i'm sat next to but then when you, <laughs> as you were saying that look at the you know the sense of what is the past what other creatures even have or what other living things have any sense of a passing of time yeah. as we do well it, it's it's interesting because we measure time by events that happen um so our brains can only take uh, 23 frames per second or something give or take it's a lot more complicated than that um but interestingly uh, and the slow motion uh, camera basically works by taking like i think 10,000 frames or more um, and then playing the mouse at that speed so if we take more information in we generally see time as being slower which is why if you drink loads of coffee um time will actually go slower for you because you're more hyperactive um so if you want a day something that's last forever just drink loads of coffee um <laughs> or i think it's going to be a very drunk. short period of time before some coffee manufacturer has you as it's the face of its advertising <laughs> campaign um <laughs> Or um, if you want something to go really fast, I, I guess alcohol. Um, but <laughs> um, but so when you think about that, it's it's also why um, time seems to stop whenever you're in like a bike accident or something, um, or you're in a life emergency because your brain is going like, oh my goodness me, what do I do? Taking all the information, loads and loads of information and then spread it out really, really far, and all of a sudden time stops. Um, and so it's very cool. Um, um, I love that book, actually, The River of Consciousness. It's, it's a really, really good book. Um, yeah, really I think Oliver Sacks is such a... But that's because yeah. I've just picked up, I didn't... It's always a delight when you find one you didn't know existed. Like that one, I remember I was in a bookshop in Toronto walking to a gig, <laughs> and I walked in and, I, and I'd not known it had come out. And it's lovely, mm -hmm. for those who don't know, it's a beautiful collection of uh, mainly pieces. I think he wrote for the New York Review of Books, was it? Uh, I think essays, which, mm -hmm. uh, particularly looking at uh, William James and Charles Darwin. And, the, and that first essay about looking oh, at the magnolia so plant is yep. such oh a... it's so good i remember um i actually had it um because i had a hard copy and an audio book copy and i was out in the forest park just sitting on a bench listening to this um because um it was like it was raining so i couldn't bring out like a hard copy of a book and i wandered upon a magnolia just as he started talking about them and i was like Oh my goodness me. <laughs> um, and so I just sat there staring at the Magnolia and hearing, oh, it was amazing. But <laughs> are there um, other, are there other, do you read a lot of nature books yourself? I mean, you, you clearly think a lot about nature. Do, do you read a lot or are there authors that you really like? Not really, particularly, which is almost like a, feels like a cardinal sin, but not really. Um, I read a lot of nature poetry books, um, like John Clare, uh, Kavanagh, Seamus Heaney. Um, and of course I do read, uh, Robert McFarlane's books, um, as nature books, but I don't really know. I find that a lot of the authors on a lot of nature books can come off as quite ostentatious, I guess they can, 
it can they can get a bit stubborn um in their in their and it's so adamantly descriptive a lot of it there's no give or take really in how you perceive nature um i so i struggle with a, a few offers <laughs> um in how they perceive the world but which is why i usually lean to poetry because there's all the interpretation i want possible possibly i could possibly ever want in that um but but yeah that's probably why when i was writing diary of a young naturalist and i didn't realize this until i was reading the audiobook <laughs> um that i incorporated poetic structures like rhythmic structures into accidentally into my writing that when i re went out to read them i was like oh that's it that that's a tongue twister uh, <laughs> um this is a struggle um <laughs> because things sort of rhymed in and sort of made um, syllable structures in a way that I it's I feel like I sort of started um, uh, copying Seamus Heaney slightly um, without realizing it. So it's inspiration. There are worse people to copy, you know. There, there are definitely. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it was just because that was who I read the most of throughout my life. Um, like I've just got all. Shamusini. So, <laughs> his that lovely book of interviews, Stepping Stones, I think it is. Have you, have you, which is just again, which means that each time you read an interview with him, then you can go back to one of his collections. And it, again, it that's what I love about. It's interesting. I don't know if this is what you, any of your intention when you talk about some of the nature writers, is I sometimes think that there's some writers on across the fields who things are a Rorschach test. And so they see what they see in nature or whatever else it might be, but then make that an objective truth. Whereas I think the, the thing that I find fascinating is with authors where their, their, their truth, their ideas, they are malleable. And, and new pieces of information mean that when you return to that poetry, when you return to those essays, whatever they might be, they are and also from your own life changing as well. Mm -hmm. their, yeah. their work has a looseness that allows. I, I was wondering when you were mentioning poetry, whether you had had a chance to read. Uh, right at the beginning, I mentioned John Higgs's book, with The World versus William Blake, because I think William Blake's vision of the world, this fourfold vision that he has, there's a beautiful description of him arguing with um, a thistle that is an old man. But the, the the thistle in his head is not singularly an old man. He knows that anyone else passing him will see a thistle. And he knows that the thistle is a thistle. But also at that particular moment and at that level of vision, he's also seeing another form of what the thistle might... Do you see what I mean? I don't know if that makes sense, but the different yeah. levels of vision that he allows himself to have, which means that he says, you know, for him there were these four different levels of vision. Each one had a separate truth to it, and none of them, apart from maybe the first observation of the physical reality of the object, none of them are objective truths for him to tell the rest of the world that this is what the thistle is. They are yeah. his perception, his imagination being projected onto it. I'm going to read this now. <laughs> um, I was going to have one of my favourite lines in, in Wild Child is that one about the oak tree, which I'd not heard before, that an oak tree spends 300 years growing, 300 yep. years living, and 300 years dying. 
and uh, and that because where where I was brought up, there's a very, very you know one of those old oak trees where mm. every year you presume it must be dead by now because there seems to be no centre, the trunk seems to have disappeared, yeah. it just seems to be a kind of thin a thin skein of of bark, and yet every year still the green sprouts are there, yeah. and I loved that that sense of you talking about the passing of time for an oak tree. I think is a beautiful perspective. Yeah, oak trees live for an extraordinarily long time and it's always been a favorite fact that the 300 years growing living and 300 years dying uh so it's, it's very nice and even obviously not as exact as that um but it's generally <laughs> round about there um and i feel like we can't even really comprehend that uh like i know i struggle with it it, it just becomes this tree in your life and why i i am i feel like i'm 12 layers deep into reality now um god this conversation is <laughs> yeah, i feel welcome, like welcome to book shambles <laughs> yep <laughs> well, the nice thing about trees i think to get yeah. i like trees too is that they carry yeah. their history with them and you don't see it till they die, but every, like, because they're layered. I mean, I'm actually, I'm sitting at an oak desk. So in front of me, I've got the grain of the wood, you know, that I can touch right now. And I am looking at the history of a tree. Mm. And we don't see things like that in the world. Anyone who's got any wood anywhere near them, if you can see the grain, you are looking at a story that we can't read. And I love that, that it, it carries, the story isn't, it's not, it's not an instantaneous moment in a story. It's like the oak is always, adding to its story um and that and that gives you as the sense of the, the time perspective so yeah i'm a i'm a big fan of stories that are carried oh yeah so what are you working on at the moment have you got you've just finished wild child i guess that's yep. that's coming out so that's taking some of your he's working time on his maths exam he's got maths exam. yeah i've got a maths that's exam exactly reasonable. Um, um i've got a sequel that i not entirely sure how much I can talk about to Wild Child. And that is because it's a children's book, the embargoes are really heavy. And uh, that's um, interesting. I'd never realized that with children's books. Yeah, the, the embargo would be even heavier. Oh my goodness, me. Children, the children's book industry is lethal compared to everyone <laughs> everywhere else. It is actually <laughs> insane. Um it's because it's ridiculously competitive because you've got to try and beat like Julia Donaldson and Dave Williams and not be drowned out. Um, so everybody's competing because children's books are inevitably big and you actually have to fight for your shelf space. <laughs> mm. um, so it becomes like a, almost like a dog fight. It's oh, you mean physically brutal. big? Like children's books it's are physically, physically bigger? Big. You have to actually fight for your shelf space. <laughs> um, <laughs> I thought about that. Yeah. Have you um, not seen the the footage of Dara and Julia Donaldson, both of them having to be dressed as gruffalos? Because whoever is the dominant author on that day is allowed <laughs> to choose what costume you have to wear. And they were placed in a ring and then had to bounce a bird. But he eventually had a gruffalo move that she wasn't expecting. And uh, now she has to dress as a goldfinch uh, for the uh, the reunion battle. I so, think I should uh, spend more time in the children's sections of bookshops. They sound oh, fascinating. Oh, you should. I've got to tell you, Dara, one of the things is your book, because having been to over 100 bookshops in the last couple of months yep. <laughs> uh wild child was out front and center in pretty much ever the two best nature books i think in terms of dominance 
and also excellence. The other one was Susan Ogilvie's Nests. Have you seen that? Yeah, I've seen that. I actually have seen that. Yeah. And they were both. Both of yours were, were like they, they were the ones. Considering, as you said, the size of yours is it's, yeah. a, it's a pretty you know no yeah. wide. <laughs> And, uh, and but it's, it's sneaky now you mention it because it's quite large on the cover, but it's it's relatively thin, so it's it's spread out its content to make I the biggest that, cover possible. Yeah, I actually think that the font size was um, there. I think something happened with the font size slightly. Um, <laughs> there's some really funny stories about Wild Child though, because it was released during lockdown that I can't divulge the seek trade secrets of. But let's just say we we're lucky to actually get the book uh, at all. Um, and there was some interesting, um, like the Suez Canal blockage did have some effects. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, I've also got another book that's on its way at some point. And I had intended to wander Ireland and just be a storyteller. Um and really enjoy myself and then the, all the lockdowns happened and then i couldn't wander um so um that sounds like great fun though i mean that's a very old tradition wandering the countryside yep. and telling stories that's yep. an, a properly ancient uh yeah, thing to I, do i, I so. just sort of, sort of want to do that as something a bit more relaxed um it's very very enjoyable so far to actually get to write stories that i'd love from a very young age and like tell them in my own little way that's interesting. The, the, how, when did you develop an interest in, or, or maybe not even develop the interest in mythology, but notice the connection between? Because I've just been reading the the book um, "Decline of uh, of Religion and Magic," which is, is from the fifteenth century onwards. You know, and, and when I've started, I've got more and more into those kind of areas of seeing how myth is used to create connections which don't exist in or didn't exist in terms of a scientific perspective um and i find that th those things are, are absolutely fascinating to see how and yeah. when you sometimes see some of the books written about the indigenous people of australia as well and the ways mm. that the systems that they built up which are, are have within them a scientific system as well because yeah. they you know the survival is 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 very much part of many of those stories that are told and yet very often the, the mythological stories i think until recently there was a period of time where they very much got batted away as this thing from the past that might have been useful then for some reason or other but we've all grown up yeah. now and i think now we start to see that there is there is still much to be learned in 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 those connections yeah um at least i hope so because mythology was um i hope they're they're useful because i learned basically all i know about humans and but from myths because I didn't read a lot of fiction growing up. I read mostly fact books. And I was like, okay, maybe I'll divulge, I'll just go in and read some myth books. And because I was like, it's close enough to fact books. It's close enough. Um, and so my before I really started speaking to people, my entire knowledge of humanity basically came out of Greek myths, which is probably the best idea in the world. Uh, but <laughs> That must have been a shock when you met yeah, the rest I of the like, world. I was like, what? <laughs> um, no thunderbolts. <laughs> what? Where am I? I need some smiting. Uh, <laughs> I recommend um, but, if you've not read it. Oh, sorry. No, 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 you go. Sorry. I was. 
No, if you've not read it yet, Philip Ball's book, The Modern Myths, is very good because it looks at the, the kind of the stories, what, what we take from things like Dracula and Frankenstein and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and work of Alan Moore and things like that and looks at, again, the, the different ways, the different things that can be, be read into them. That's very cool because, like, there is definitely a lot and I love overanalyzing everything in my life. So um, I'll just get stuck into a book and the, i usually when i really like a book i end up staying with that book for years afterwards um like take lord of the rings for example every single summer without fail for the last seven years i have reread that series um and every single time because it's so long i've forgotten exactly what happens and um, but i always make different connections each time between different events and so um, I do lot, and it's very mythology based. Um, a lot of Anglo-Saxon in it. Where are you thinking of? Because you you're now doing you're basically doing the end of your school exams, mm -hmm. aren't you? This is the final year, I presume, is it? Yeah, it is my final year. Um, oh, I've got biology and maths exam on the exact same day, so I've got a five and a half hour long exam in wow. the exam hall, which is not so nice, but. <laughs> Whereas I've now reached the age, now I'm 52, I finally stopped dreaming. It took years about an exam that I didn't know I was going to have. My God, it's incredible. 30 years after you finish school and you still have a dream where, for some reason, oh. you've been taken back to school and you're made to do an exam you knew nothing about. They never vanish until you get to 52. Um, <laughs> just, um, and what are you, at the moment, what do you think you would most like to, you know, talking of the mind of the scientist, you talked about in the heart of the naturalist, what areas do you think you most want to kind of focus on in, in the next stage of your education? Um, well, I'm still as indecisive as I was, was back then. Um, so biology. Uh, <laughs> biology, maybe zoology. I do like uh, mushrooms and fungi as well. Although some days I do like psychology. So I'm still not entirely sure. <laughs> somewhere in biology yeah okay. I, th I think you know psych you know psychology and biology i think and also as you said you your fascination with oliver sacks as well and, and his yeah. you know oliver sacks writing managed to cover so many different yeah. areas and, and as you said also rivers of consciousness which I, i'm going to just mention again on the podcast because you really recommend it to anyone it's listening. so good <laughs> it is actually an amazing book that's probably the single reason why i would choose psychology that book <laughs> yeah it's quite interesting we were, we were on a um so my sister did a psychology conversion course and we, we were sitting at a table recently in a cafe and you know because that was seemed to be a thing suddenly and there was someone at the table next to us and he said i've overheard part of our conversation psychology came up and she was so she only studied psychology maybe 15 years ago and he was like sitting there with his textbooks and they had this really interesting conversation about how the subject of psychology had become much more evidence-based in those 15 years because my sister kind of gave up on it because it was all a bit sort of she wouldn't call herself a scientist but she was like well there's all these people who think these things but they've got no reason for thinking them and apparently now it's much more it's got more of an evidence-based foundation so there's a bit more to kind of get your teeth into when it comes to what yeah, how I've, to move I've forward it. yeah so it's yeah. becoming more scientific i guess that's yeah why. yeah okay. that is that is true from what i've seen of of the course now it's quite have a uh, quite a lot more evidence i guess it's because we've actually found evidence now so getting um, better at the maths 
I think yeah. a lot of it is getting a lot better at the maths. Yeah, and um, so that maths exam you're doing, and I say yeah. this to all my students: if yeah, do as much maths as you can. It yeah. will always come in useful. Yeah, and I guess like we didn't have really too many brain scans fifteen years ago that were that effective either. So we didn't really know much about the brain. <laughs> Well, a, a great book is uh, Matthew Cobb's uh, The History of the, of, of the Brain as well. Or is it The Story mm. of the Brain? I think it's The Story of the Brain, actually, not <laughs> The History of the Brain. But it covers a lot of history. The first third yeah. of it is history. Because he basically says, any time you read one of those books that says, this book will tell you all about the human brain, you can just cast it aside because we know so yeah, little. It's, so it's... Yeah. We, we basically know nothing about the brain. <laughs> So I mentioned about, and by the way, I, I will say this about Wild Child, which is is Dara's latest book. Which is even whether you it is in the children's book section or not doesn't really matter. It's a really really beautiful book, and it is just such a lovely mixture of you know even just to stare at all of the different names of you know collective nouns of birds, and to start with murmuration, which I think is probably one of my favourite words of all time. I think murmuration is such a, a beautiful and evocative. And murmuration of silence, a confusion of chiff-chaffs, an asylum of cuckoos, a murder of crows, a conspiracy of ravens. Thank you very much, everyone, who's joined us. Thank you very much to Helen for uh, joining us today. As, well, as I said, Josie is still on maternity leave and uh, and we'll be back sometime in 2022. And uh, thank you very much, Dara. Thank you so much, Robin, Helen. It's been amazing. Uh, don't forget, thanks to our producer Trent Burton as well. And uh, if you can support us via Patreon, please do. Just go to uh, cosmicshambles.com and you'll find out how to do all that. And you'll also find all the other shows that we're making. We're going to have a new series of uh, An Uncanny Hour soon. And because it's the, uh, it would be, it would have been the hundredth birthday of both Christopher Lee and Kurt Vonnegut in 2022. So I think we're definitely going to do some Uncanny Hour specials on them. And uh, and we'll be back with lots of other things soon as well. Bye bye. <laughs> Yes, thank you very much for listening. Dara's book is available now. Both Dara's books are available now, as are Helen's books and, of course, Robin's books. You can get signed copies of Robin and Helen's book from the Cosmic Shambles bookshop, cosmicshambles.com slash bookshop. Support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash bookshambles. Rate, review, like, subscribe, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all that business. Back next week with another new guest. Until then, have a great week, stay safe, and we will see you soon. Bye. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.